the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. This great nation will endure as it has endured. Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on earth. You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. We're not, as some would have us believe, doomed to an inevitable decline. I do not believe in a fate that will fall on us no matter what we do. I do believe in a fate that will fall on us if we do nothing. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. My country tears me. Sweet land of liberty of Beyonce. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. This is Always Right Radio on AM 1420, The Answer. Here's your host, Bob France. All right, it is indeed, and a good morning to you. Thank you for joining us as we get underway on a Friday edition of Always Right Radio, the third morning of the 11th month, year of our Lord, 2023. We invented something this morning. I'm pretty happy about it. Um, walked into the studio, walked down the hallway to our sister station, The Fish, went in and say hi to Lynn and Sarah, and I invented something on the spot. I gave them, I gave them fist bumps, and they had a guest in the studio, too, and I said, Happy Fist Bump Friday. I don't know why I said it. I just did, and I think it should be every bit as accepted and widespread as Taco Tuesday. The difference between this and that is nobody knows who invented Taco Tuesday. LeBron James tried to take credit for it. But he's a thug and an idiot anyway. That's to be expected. I literally invented Fist Bump Friday, and and everybody has loved it so far. Marianne, you didn't get a fist bump yet. You need a fist bump on Fist Bump Friday. Get one from Seth over there, will you please? We got Everybody has to have a fist bump Friday. And, and, Len, and Len said, fist, fist bump Friday, I love that. Seth is on the phone over there. I know that. Give the, give, the, give the woman a fist bump, will you please? Thank you. Len loved it. I love it. We're in a good mood because it's Friday. It, the weekend is upon us. 
And when you're in a good mood, you fist bump your boys and your girls, and it's just a thing. So Fist Bump Friday, when it becomes viral, when it goes all over the Internet, when it becomes a meme and videos and everything else, just remember you were there for the birth of Fist Bump Friday, something I just said off the cuff uh, when I visited the fish studio this morning. So there you go. Happy Fist Bump Friday. Make sure you fist bump all your friends, your neighbors, the guy in the cubicle next to you, the guy in the office down the hall, the person you see in the break room. If somebody's filling the vending machine in the break room, fist bump the vending guy. All right? Fist Bump Friday for everybody. That's the way I see it. we got a big show lined up for you this morning. Uh, coming up, we are going to be speaking with, you know, I spoke of this in some depth um, Last week and toward the beginning of this week, and I did it on the Prager show, too, this week, about how there is no such thing as Palestine and there is no such thing as Palestinians as a result. And this idea that there are Palestinians claiming that their land of Palestine, which never existed, is being occupied by Israelis and uh, colonized, if you will, by the Jews is just so much nonsense. One of the sources that I use to back up my my belief on this is a man named... um, uh, Rabbi Michael Barclay, and Rabbi Marco Bar- uh, Michael Barclay wrote a very in-depth historical piece on what Palestine was used, the name Palestine was used for when it was, and why it is not applicable to uh, a land, a state. There was never a land of Palestine that was named that way. There is some history behind it, and I, I gave a lot of that on the program, but I said, let's go to the source and, ha- source and have an expert come in and talk about that. So today... Uh, coming up here at uh, 935, we are going to get that from Rabbi Michael Barclay, a little history of what it means, uh, this uh, this conflict between, quote-unquote, Israel and Palestine, or Israelis and Jews and Palestinians. So that's going to be a very educational thing for you. How many people in your day-to-day ask you, what's what does it mean, a two-state solution? How many people in your day-to-day say, what's going on in the Middle East again? I know there was this terrible, terrible attack, and I know now that the other side, Israel, is attacking back, and there's a call for a ceasefire, but what was that all about? I can tell you, I can't tell you, I am, I am suspecting, based on conversations that I have with people in my day-to-day, probably less than 20%, this is just kind of an off-the-cuff observation, probably less than 20% of uh, the general population of adults, much less students, understand anything about what the Middle East is, what the, what the conflict between Israel and the Arabs in the region, the Muslims in the region, the quote-unquote Palestinians, what it's all about. They don't know. They just know that The Middle East is described as a powder keg. It has been for decades, probably since most people have been alive. Certainly, you know, 1947 when Israel came to be and immediately they were attacked by all sides on all sides by Arab countries. Um, You know, that that's that's 20 years before I was born. So for most people anyway, um, this is how it's always been. The Middle East is a powder keg. Uh, it's it's violent. It's volatile. Israel is always under attack, et cetera. And people just it's too far away for me to care. Right, most people in Cleveland, Ohio, or in uh, Joliet, Illinois, or in uh, Richmond, uh, uh, Kentucky, they don't care. They don't know. It's way too far away. And unless you are Jewish and have family there in Israel, or you are Arab and you have family in the in any of those regions, if you're from, you know, your ancestry or your family is from Lebanon or, or Jordan or Egypt or whatever, Syria, doesn't matter. Or Gaza, <clears throat> nobody cares. Um, so most people don't understand what's going on over there. And I 
think now that it's drawing us ever closer to having to make a decision as to whether or not we are going to get involved, and we already are involved by way of supporting and, and being an ally of Israel, but and we're about to be more involved if we send this $14.3 billion aid package to them that was approved by the House last night. We're about to be more involved. If we are going to get involved in whatever manner that looks like, we should know what's going on. So I'm making it kind of my goal here on a daily basis to give you a little more information, a little more of an education on it. Maybe that's the teacher in me, which I did a lifetime ago. Uh, uh, but but I, I want to present and I want to inform and I want to educate. And we're going to have a we're going to have a speaker for the class today, and that's going to be Rabbi Barclay, and that's going to be at uh, at nine thirty five. And I think you need to know what's going on there. Coming up at ten ten, former Congressman Jim Renacci is going to join us. Congressman Renacci is going to talk about ranking. Ohio legislators and even the governor by way of their conservative performance. There's a there's a new-ish kind of an organization doing some pretty heavy lifting to figure out exactly who we can trust in the Ohio State House. They do this in other states too, but they did this at Jim Renacci's request for the state of Ohio, and the results are in. And Renacci is going to join us to talk about those at 1010. And then at 1035, right here in our studios uh, in Northeast Ohio this morning, uh, we will have Senator J.D. Vance from the great state of Ohio. Uh, he will be in studio with us, and we're going to be talking about a lot of these things that you and I are mentioning right now, and including Ohio's Issue 1 and Issue 2. We are just days away, four days away, right? If you don't count today, you got Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, so four and a half, we'll call it, since we're already halfway through today, in my book, book anyway. <clears throat> Don't uh, don't don't hit me for a few hours off. But we're about four and a half days away from uh, from election day. And issues one and two are extraordinarily important. We're going to talk to Senator Vance about both of those, as we are with you at two one six nine zero one zero nine four five and triple eight two eight one eleven ten. Having said all of that, I want to say this about Congressman Max Miller. Yesterday we did a, an interview with Max Miller in which we talked about the unfathomable decision that he made at the time we couldn't fathom it right uh on wednesday night to vote against censuring terrorist sympathizer and supporter and hamas fan and anti-semitic jew hating representative sharia talib he voted against censuring her along with 22 other republicans and i was blown away by that everybody else was i talked to max miller wednesday night after the vote I asked him if he would come on and explain himself yesterday. He did. Talked for about 25 minutes, and he explained why he voted no. Is it because he doesn't want to hold accountable a terrorist sympathizer, an anti-Semitic person like Rashida Tlaib? Clearly not. He cannot stand Rashida Tlaib, doesn't even think she'd be in Congress, but he made an argument on behalf of the bad language of the resolution to censure that was written by Marjorie Taylor Greene. And his argument was that that um, resolution was just thrown together willy-nilly and in, in a crappy kind of a copy version of a resolution condemning the quote-unquote insurrection of January 6th by the January 6th committee, select committee. He said they literally just copied it and changed the words from, you know, uh, Trump to Rashida Tlaib and from, you know, J6ers and so forth to the quote-unquote insurrectionists who joined her on October 8th. Uh, at the Capitol in condemning um, um, Israel's response to this and calling for a ceasefire and all the other crap that went on. And he and others who voted against that resolution to censure 
said that it was all about that. That language should not have been there. Calling this an insurrection legitimizes them calling January 6th an insurrection. Neither one is true. So he explained why he voted no, and at the same time, yesterday on this program, he promised he would be drafting a new resolution of censure to prove that he is not against censuring Rashida Tlaib. He said he is drafting a new resolution based on her rhetoric, based on her statements, based on her actions, not based on a phony insurrection that was not an insurrection. So I said, well, if Max Miller does this, Um, I think, you know, a lot of people who are being critical of him right now need to pull back. Maybe not apologize, because I'm not going to apologize for my first blush reaction to his, his no vote on censure. I think I was right to condemn that. But I did say that if he comes through, and especially if he comes through in a timely manner on this, and not days and weeks later, if he comes through with his own resolution to censure Rashida Tlaib, I think we will we will have to pull back our criticism, if not outright apologize for it, pull back on it and reevaluate it and say, all right, well, guess what? Max Miller came through. He texted me yesterday. Let me see if I can pull it up on the phone here. Yesterday afternoon, it was around, uh, looks like around 3 o'clock, um, Congressman Miller, uh, doggone it, my phone is freezing up on me here. Let's see, where is Max? Congressman Miller yesterday at uh, at uh, four o'clock, beg pardon, at four o'clock, texted me the three forty-two p.m. There it is. He t- I don't know why I care so much about the time, but I guess I just do. He texted me um, a copy of and the language of the resolution that he was introducing uh, into the House, and I will tell you, it is every bit what he said it would be. It is. Fully, fully condemning Rashida Tlaib for everything that she has done and said uh, against the state of Israel and, by extension, uh, uh, the ally of the state of the state of Israel, the United States of America, against Jews in support of terrorists. And it is far stronger of a resolution to to censure Rashida Tlaib than the one he voted against. And it does not contain the foolish language about um, about insurrections. In other words, Max Miller, Congressman Max Miller, was right. Resolution censuring Representative Rashida Tlaib and condemning anti-Semitism. And I'm quoting from the resolution that he sent me and that he introduced on the House uh, in the in the House yesterday. Whereas Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib has a long history of spewing hate and making anti-Semitic remarks or statements, beg your pardon, and anti-Israel remarks. All of which are unbecoming of a member of Congress. Whereas on May in May 2019, Congresswoman Tlaib, while on the Skullduggery podcast, said, "Quote: There's a kind of calming feeling I always tell folks when I think of the Holocaust and the tragedy of the Holocaust." Whereas in 2020, Congresswoman Tlaib tweeted an illustration with a caption from the river to the sea, "Palestine will be free," and this Palestine Liberation Organization slogan has been adopted by Hamas and calls for the eradication of Israel and the genocide of all Jews. Whereas in September 2022, Congresswoman Tlaib participated in a virtual event hosted by the Americans for Justice in Palestine Action and said, I want you all to know that among progressives it becomes clear that you cannot claim to hold progressive values, yet back Israel's apartheid government. Whereas on May 9, 2023, the CEO and National Director of the ADL, Anti-Defamation League wrote a letter to the Speaker McCarthy and Minority Leader Jeffries warning them 
of an event Congresswoman Tlaib was planning on hosting in the U.S. Capitol entitled Nakba 75 and the Palestinian People. The letter goes on to say, in previous years, many Nakba Day events have devolved into hateful anti-Israel and anti-Semite language. Just last year in May 2022, speakers at Nakba Day events across the country variously referred to Israelis as the stench of white European invaders, called for, the death, to, called for death to Israel, and stated that everyone should fight within his means. They will fight with stones, others will fight with guns, others will fight with planes, drones, and others will fight with rockets. Whereas on July 18, 2023, Congresswoman Tlaib voted against adopting a resolution expressing a sense of Congress supporting the state of Israel. Whereas on October 8, 2023, one day after a series of coordinated attacks on Israel perpetrated by Hamas terrorists and leaving more Jews dead than any single day since the Holocaust, Congresswoman Tlaib issued a statement calling Israel an apartheid state and insinuating the United States should end its support for the state of Israel. Whereas acts of hate, discrimination, and violence based on religion or ethnicity have no place inside the halls of Congress, and members of Congress who denounce the United States while praising terrorist organizations are unfit to hold office, whereas freedom of speech and expression are foundational principles in the United States, but when these principles are used to promote violence, hatred, or discrimination on the basis of religious beliefs, national origin, or ancestry, anyone, including members of Congress, must be held accountable. Whereas Congresswoman Tlaib's repeated anti-Israel remarks are irreconcilable with long-standing United States policy to support our strong ally in a volatile region, and whereas Congresswoman Tlaib's repeated anti-Semitic remarks perpetuate and encourage hatred toward Jewish people in the United States, now therefore be it resolved that, one, Representative Rashida Tlaib be censured, two, Representative Rashida Tlaib forthwith present herself in the well of the House of Representatives for the pronouncement of censure, Three, Representative Rashida Tlaib be censured with the public reading of this resolution by the Speaker. Four, the House of Representatives unilaterally condemns all forms of anti-Semitism as a threat to democracy and overall safety and well-being for Jewish Americans and stands in solidarity with those affected by anti-Semitism by any member of Congress. Five, the House of Representatives calls upon all members of Congress to denounce and combat all forms of anti-Semitism emphasize the need to raise awareness about the dangers of anti-Semitism and encourage leaders across this country to speak out against it. And finally, the House of Representatives pledges to advance accurate Holocaust education and counter Holocaust denial and distortion, commemorate the victims of the Holocaust, and ensure that lessons of the tragedy are not forgotten. That is every letter and word in the resolution to censure Sharia Tlaib. It is stronger than the resolution to censure Sharia Tlaib that Representative Miller voted against. It is stronger, it is better, and it's going through regular order. So I want everyone who came down on Max Miller, myself included, to know the reality that he was acting in the best interests of the United States, the nation of Israel, and Jewish people suffering from anti-Semitism at all times because he voted against Um, a measure that I supported voting for because he had plans to introduce a better one. And Congressman Max Miller should be commended because he did. He didn't just say it. He walked the walk. And I think that's important for all of us to know. All right. Um, We're going to do our uh, Pledge of Allegiance. We'll take a time out. We're going to come back with Rabbi uh, Michael Barkley. 
Uh, so, Patriots, please stand with your hand on your heart and face a flag if you have one. If you're driving and you found a way to get a flag in front of you on your dashboard, in your rearview mirror, or sticker, or, or some small flag that you can put up some way, God bless you. That's awesome. But let's uh, do our pledge. If you are a believer and a supporter of <clears throat> a ceasefire that will lead to more dead Jews and more powerful Hamas, um, then you obviously don't have any interest in Israel, the United States, or uh, liberty. So therefore, don't fake it. You don't have to stand and pledge with us. Take a knee like the Marxist that you are. For the rest of us, however, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty. Keeping you informed among the uninformed. Always Right Radio with Bob France on The Answer. All right, it is 935. Good fist bump Friday morning to you. Thank you so much for being with us. So um, as mentioned, I've been spending some time, and I did um, the entire Dennis Prager show uh, a couple of days ago talking about how there is no such thing as Palestine, and there is no such thing as a result as Palestinians, and that there has never been a map officially recognized a territory, recognizing a territory called Palestine. So why on earth is this Palestinians versus Israelis, Palestinians versus Jews, this uh, age-old conflict going the way that it is? Why do we refer to it as such? One of the sources that I turned to <clears throat> for information and history of this was an article that I found uh, a few weeks back uh, on PJ Media, headlined, There Is No Such Thing as Palestinians. It was written by Rabbi Michael Barclay, and uh, Rabbi Barclay uh, is the spiritual leader of the Temple Nur Simcha, or Simcha, I'll have to get clarification, my apologies, and the author of Sacred, Re- Sacred Relationships, Biblical Wisdom for Deepening Our Lives Together, and Rabbi Barclay joins us now on AM 1420, The Answer, maybe with some clarity and some information for us. Rabbi, good morning. It's good to talk to you. How are you, sir? I'm well, thank God, and good morning, and, and thank you for having me on. You're very kind. I appreciate you being, especially getting up as early as you are out there in California. So uh, so we really appreciate that here. Uh, Temple Nur Simcha, I apologize, pronunciation, or is it Simcha? It's Simcha. Simcha. Oh, I, there you go. I should have known that. I should have figured that part out. My apologies. Okay. So um, I, I read with great interest your article and a few others that were similar to it to discuss this, because people are still wondering. I, I, I was kind of talking earlier, Rabbi, uh, I, I think if you were to aver, ad, ask the average American what they know about historical the historical Middle East and the history of the Israeli land, the history of this Palestinian conflict, if as you will, if you will, with them, and I think probably less than twenty percent of adults know it's so far away, it's complex. If you're not a historian, you probably don't know much. I think it's important now that we are in this terrible, terrible battle over there as um, uh, the Hamas terrorists uh, try to make good on their pledge and their charter to wipe Israel out and to kill all Jews, if we're going to be involved in this to the point of um, funding the Israeli response and uh, possibly more, we need to know much more about this. So that's why I wanted to reach out, and I want to see if you can put this in layman's terms and explain to people um, the the land battle and why it is that uh, those who support the quote unquote Palestinian cause believe that this is stolen land, when in reality there there never was a Palestine officially recognized and uh, and therefore Palestinians. Can you take it from there? Um, I can. I can try at least. So <clears throat> historically, we have the first kingdom in that region was a Jewish kingdom, uh, the kingdom of King Saul. If anyone who's read the Bible might remember that. 
And before that, there were a bunch of nomadic tribes wandering all over the place, different tribes. And the first time there was a kingdom in that area, one government, it's King Saul. Um, then King David, King Solomon, and then the the split of the, of the Israeli kingdom into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And that goes on, and, and it, it is conquered by the Babylonians in the 6th century before the Common Era. And then they come back, and they rebuild the temple, and uh, they're ultimately conquered by uh, the, the Romans in the 70 of the Common Era, and the Second Temple is destroyed. So now we've already gone back, just to put things in perspective, over 3,000 years for King Saul. Mm-hmm. And, I'm not, and I'm taking the Bible sort of out of this in terms of the promise of God to have this holy land, because there are people who don't believe in the Bible, that's fine. So that's your first kingdom as King Saul. From then until now, Jews have always lived there in the area. There is no Palestine. We get through the Roman kingdom. We don't have, I mean, remember, Muhammad's not even born for another five, six hundred years. Um, we have the one kingdom after another, one empire after another, conquering the Jews, but it's always a Jewish kingdom. There's always the Jewish population there and with the first kingdom there. In the 13th century, give or take, you get the Mamluks, which are a, a uh, tribe that becomes an empire that ultimately is composed of, you know, genetic gypsies, and there are people who are, there. it is a Muslim empire, but you don't have Palestine. Still don't have a Palestine, you have Israel. That becomes the Ottoman Empire ultimately. And then you have the British Empire, which takes over uh, after World War I. And in 1922, you have the mandates, um, where you first, at the first time, you have in these mandates a concept of calling it a Palestine. Uh, that's one of the words that's used by the British. And it's actually a mandate that becomes part of Jordan. Uh, it's not. It's not. A, it's still not a nation. It's still not a country. There is no such thing as a Palestinian. The Jordanian. It's part of the territory. In 1948. Let, let me uh, let me let me interrupt for a moment and to get some clarity on that. So there there wasn't an officially recognized bordered actual Palestine when they started using that term when the when when the uh, when the Romans started using the term Palestine. So to what were they referring? There's a term of Palestinian that is, you know, are you talking about going back to the Roman times or are you going back to, to the British times? Well, let's do the Romans first and then we'll bring it more modern to the British. Um, because because I, I know that, that, that back in that period, uh, you know, roughly, you know, 2,000 years ago or, or whatever it was, um, that the Romans, this is from other sourcing that I've read, the Romans essentially in a, in a, in a statement of hostility toward the Jews and toward um, uh, the Jewish peoples uh, said, "This is not your land," and they started using a word "Palestine," but they did not. No, but they but it did not mean anything. Let's back up. They don't say this is not your land. It's the land of. So when Israel splits, you have the Israel splits into two kingdoms, and you have the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern <laughs> kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel is the northern ten tribes, and when they're conquered in 722 before the Common Era, and those are dispersed, you've heard of the ten lost tribes. Right? It once says that they're part of the lost tribes of Israel. That's what they're talking about. Okay. And for another 150 years, you still have the kingdom of Judah in the south, which is where Jerusalem is, with the tribes of, of Judah and Benjamin. Um, the Romans call, what's a good way of phrasing it, but making an analogy, because um, I don't want to be derogatory, and the, that's the first terms that come up. The Romans don't want to call it Judah, which is what it is, and so they call that whole area of the region um, 
a derogatory term based on a nomadic tribe that had lived there. The Philistines. Right? Yes, but it's not, it has nothing to do with modern Palestine. It has nothing to do with the Arabs or the Palestinians we think of as today. It has absolutely nothing to do with it, genetically, historically, linguistically, or in any other way. Well, it, this, this this is an important this is an important part to hit, and I'm glad to hear you say. It. There, there's another another article well, I read that not, I'd like you to comment on because this is telling well, the story that you are. Uh, that well, you, if, yes, if I may interject, it's not as important as people think. And I'm going to explain to you why. All right, look, let me fast forward a little bit, and you're, and you're going to see why. Okay, so the, because the Jewish claim on the land is a historical claim, going back thousands of years, thirty two hundred years, right? Rough, roughly thirty, roughly depending on if you want to use the Bible or not. Okay. Yes, over th- over 3,000. That's not the claim Hamas is making. I don't know if people realize that. And I think this is an important thing to, to maybe think about as well. So let me get just move very quickly forward. Please. 1948, you have uh, the United Nations recognizes Israel. You have a mandate, and, and the Brits had made a, a deal before that with a family and five different cousins to be the kings of different areas of different uh, countries in, in the Middle East, the Jordan of Egypt, etc. Um, it's a mandate. It's an area of Jordan. Okay? There's an area of Jordan that is called the Palestinian Mandate. In the 1960s, when you know, immediately the Arabs from 1948 start attacking Israel, they don't want it to exist. By the 1960s, you have a circumstance where the Arabs have realized that they're losing the battle of public relations as well. They hire a company, the public relations company out of New York, the main, one of the main partners was George Anderson, mm-hmm. and they come up with this concept that in order to win public opinion, they need to have a victim. And in 1964, starts the Palestinian Liberation Organization. Mm-hmm. It's important to understand that at that point, the West Bank is part of Jordan. Okay? It's not part of Israel. In 1967, Jerusalem is unified, and now the PLO becomes much, much bigger, and they really, in terms of their, their popularity, they're saying, look, look, this is, this is our land, this is our land, this is our land. But they do something that's really brilliant. In the 1967 war, Israel's attacked by Syria, Jordan, and Egypt, and thank God Israel wins. The people living in the West Bank, which is we know what we talk about today, are they're Jordanians. Their fathers are Jordanians, their grandfathers are Jordanians, their great-grandfathers are Jordanians. The people who are living in what is now today called Gaza, their fathers, grandfathers, and great-grandfathers are Egyptians. That's what they call themselves. None of them call themselves Palestinians. There's no one who calls themselves Palestinians before the early 60s. It doesn't exist. And at that point, they do a really brilliant move of they say, okay, the people in Gaza and the people in West Bank are now one people. So instead of being Egyptians and Jordanians, we're going to call them both Palestinians. Why are we going to do that? Because we're going to say that's Palestine. And since one's on the east border of the country and one's on the western border of the country, we can say that since we are Palestinians and we are one country, everything in between is occupied territory. Think about how brilliant that is. By having it, it's like saying, okay, Los Angeles and New York are now one country. We're going to call it New New Angeles, and everything in between is occupied territory of New Angeles, even though Los Angeles and New York have nothing to do with each other. In 1988, 
you have the formation of Hamas, and that's who we're dealing with today. If you look at the Covenants of 1988, which is the Charter of Hamas, they don't make a historical claim to the land. They, and nowhere does it. In Article 7 of their Covenant, and this is why I wanted to fast forward if I could, in Article 7, they claim that it's lock. It is a, a, an Islamic term, the meaning holy possession, that once you have conquered the land, it is now always Allah's land. It literally means holy possession. Even in their charter, Hamas does not claim a historical right to the, to the land. They claim a possession right of having won it, going back to the Mamluks in the 13th century. Does that help a little bit, put it in perspective? It does. It, it, it's a tremendous explanation, and I appreciate that education. Um, we're talking with Rabbi Michael Barkley. If you just t- uh, turn us on, <clears throat> he has written a very important piece, among, among many others, um, uh, uh, entitled, uh, There Is No Such Thing as Palestinians. The reason... Um, I wanted to go back, and I'm glad you fast-forwarded, but I do want to go back is because I have been arguing on the air in a several different forums that there never were Palestinians, there never was a Palestine. And some people have said, yes, there were. The Romans identified Palestinians. And so I, I did a little more work on this, and in the Jewish Star from this past April, there was another article about this very same subject. Here's how the Palestinians got their name, and it references back to that era, as I was just discussing with you, I'll quote it. The word Palestine is not Arab or Middle Eastern in origin. It dates back 1900 years and is derived from a people who are not native to the region, the Philistines, a people from the Aegean Sea who were closely related to the ancient Greeks. They lived on the coast of what is now the Gaza Strip in Israel, but had disappeared by the 6th century. The name associated with them, however, did not die out. The Romans, in a fit of spite, this is what I was referencing, reapplied the term Palestine to the land of Israel centuries later after they defeated a Judean uprising in 135 um, uh, A.D. In effect, the Romans sought to erase the association between the land of Israel and the Jewish people, using the Palestine moniker uh, essentially to say that these Philistines are Palestinians and that's, this is their land. That's what I was trying to kind of get you to, to, to square with us. Right. And I, think no, no, you, right. I think you did. But, Go ahead, sir. And, and, and see, that's I don't like. This is really a, it's a very sad statement to say that. Unfortunately, there are a lot of Jews, and I will say this as a Jewish leader: there are a lot of Jews who their religion is has not is no longer it has not been Judaism. Their religion has left its politics. Yeah, and there is a there's a great story that. A, a rabbi walks into a little village, and he sees all these bullseyes, and he says, who made this? Who's your great archer? And they say, Moshe, the nine-year-old. He goes, the nine-year-old. He goes, did you make all these targets, all these all these bullseyes? And the child says, yes, I did, sir. He says, how'd you get so good? And the child says, oh, it's easy. I shoot this arrow, and then I draw a target around. And that's kind of what people do sometimes. Um, and that's, I, I don't know the Jewish Star publication, but that's what's been done here. That's a very, very interesting way of phrasing that. Um, let's talk about that religion that too many, I believe, American Jews have embraced, uh, giving up their actual Judaism and, uh, and, and worshiping the left and, and, and the leftist um, uh, God, if you will. Um, I've been discussing this with many people, uh, including people with protect, uh, Proclaiming Justice to the Nations, uh, Michael Goldstein, uh, who is uh, uh, one of the national directors of that organization, and asking why. 
are so many American Jews still indeed involved with leftist and Democrat politics and politicians, given the fact that as we watch this terrible situation playing out now since October 7th, obviously long before that, but even in this moment, um, you see the Hamas caucus, a part of the Democrat Party, all screaming ceasefire, ceasefire, ceasefire to protect Gazan civilians uh, from an Israeli response. Um, and 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 they're all literally uh, actively terrorist sympathizers supporting the, you know, the Muslim terrorist organizations that Hezbollah and Hamas and the Palestinian uh, uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad are. How and why, in your opinion, Rabbi Barclay, are so many American Jews still clinging to their support for that party and that ideology. Wow, there's so many issues to unpack, and, and I, I don't think we're going to be going for seven hours. Um, so I think that, first of all, there's, there needs to be recognition that Judaism is not a religion that is to make you feel good. It's a religion to make you be better, to live a better life. It is not easy, per se. And Jews have always been outsiders. And the biggest damage to, to Judaism has always been assimilation. That's the biggest fear. It doesn't matter if you go back to the Greeks, which is what Hanukkah is all about, is, the, is not to not assimilate. And here in America, especially, um, many Jews have chosen to assimilate, and they've, they've let go of their religion, of the practices and the beliefs, and decided that they want to be far left, and that's their, their religion. And... It's, it's really profoundly sad. Years ago, I wrote an article, a uh, number of articles, um, this was four or five years ago, that Jews should exit the Democratic Party. And understand, I just to put in perspective, I worked on Jerry Brown's presidential campaign. So I, I go back, I have my three credit in, in, in you know, being in liberal politics when I was young. People have adopted instead a leftist agenda, a leftist religion a lot easier than being a Jew. Um, it's, you're not hated in the same way. You know, even 150 years ago, Mark Twain said, uh, the white man hates the black man, the black man hates the yellow man, the yellow man hates the red man, but everybody hates the Jew. Um, and it's, and it's, there's, there's prejudice in its heart. People have tried to assimilate and have converted to leftism, leftist politics. And they really are loyal to that as opposed to really looking at the world I've said for many years that, that in our lifetime, we have to determine are we Americans living who have to be Jewish or Jews who, have, who live in America. I think that's something everyone has to, to look at themselves. Um, but we need to take a look at what the world says about us. BLM in their charter has called for the destruction of Israel. It's always been in their charter. Yep. This is no surprise that they were cheering on these paragliders, these, this horrible scenario, these horrible, horrible atrocities. And it's easier to turn your back and say, well, let's just have a ceasefire and forget about it. And we can't do that. It's really, really important and that we can't allow ourselves to do that. Um, I've, been, I've been talked to by a lot of people, congregants, non-congregants, just people in general, about what, what do we need to do. And, and I, look, I looked at the Bible for my personal answers, my choice. I'm not saying anyone should or should not. That's my choice. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the Bible, everybody's forgiven for all the, the bad things they do. I mean, let's be honest. King David sleeps with a married woman and has her husband killed. He's forgiven. There's only one person who's not. And it's a character called Amalek. And Amalek is never forgiven. It says that 
we should be at war forever with Amalek. We should blot Amalek off the face of the earth and its existence and remembrance. And so our sages 2,000 years ago talk about what is Amalek and why can he not be forgiven. Amalek was the one who attacked the ancient Hebrews from behind, where the women, the children, the weak, the old were. And if someone is that kind of perpetrator where their intention is not collateral damage, but their intention is to attack the weak, the children, they must be destroyed. It's evil. The one thing that can't be forgiven. And when Hamas, if you'd asked me a month and a half ago what should we should do with Hamas, I would say, you know, we need to figure out how to work with peace. We need to get them to a place where they, they want to have peace. As of October 7th, with what they did, they demonstrated that they are Amalek. And we need, they need to be destroyed. Well, Rabbi, if, if I may, just because we're a little short on time here, um, for me, and I respect every word you just said, it is, it is less about forgiveness and retribution and punishment for what was done on October 7th. It is prevention of the next phase. The, um, the um, member of the Hamas Politburo, one of the leaders, Ghazi Hamad, said in an interview uh, just last week, quote, we must teach Israel a lesson, and we will do this again and again. The October 7th operation to slaughter defenseless Israelis was, quote, just the first time, and there will be a second, a third, a fourth, um, end quote. That's, that's what a ceasefire, yeah, that's what a ceasefire means to them. A ceasefire means full-on surrender. If the Israelis lay down their guns, Hamas plans the next October 7th, and the one after that, and the one after that. That's why this is so... So, you know, like I said, it's, it's, it's about, this isn't about retribution. This isn't about collective punishment, as they are calling it. Uh, this is about surrender. If, if Israel does not wipe them out and root them out, root and branch right now, they're, they're just, you know, there's no question. They have pledged it. There will be another October 7th and one after that. Bob, do, if, if I can very quickly add two little teachings that I think are important for us to remember in this. Very short on time, but first, go ahead, sir. Very, very quick. The first one is that, um, Golda Meir said it perfectly. If we lay down, if, if they lay down their weapons, we would have peace tomorrow. If we lay down our weapons, God forbid, there'd be a massacre. That's incredibly important. And the other is that it's not only that we need to destroy this and root out this evil and destroy it, and as you say, it's not for retribution, but we need to remember there's no joy in this and no anger. They're forcing us to kill them, and it is horrible. It is devastating. It is painful that we have to go kill people because they have chosen to surrender their human souls to act like this. There's nothing but sadness. There's no joy. This is not retribution. This is to cut out a cancer so it doesn't come back. Rabbi, I thank you for that teaching, and I thank you for the history lesson here as well. It's very, very important, as I said at the top of our conversation, if Americans are going to get behind this effort to support the Israelis, they need to know the reality of what happened, what the history is in the region, and why they're not the colonizers, why the Israelis are not the occupiers, why this was not Palestinian stolen land, justifying some of the actions of the Palestinians. Your history uh, and your lessons taught here, I think, need to be spread far and wide. I thank you for doing that with us, sir. You're very kind. Thank you for all the good work you do, and, and God bless you and, and your everything you're doing. And, uh, and again, thank you so much for, for just getting out there to try and work and get the truth thank out you. people so they can see that. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Rabbi. Rabbi Michael Barclay was in uh, California, or is in California this morning, and uh, I think that was very... You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. Darkness.
This is Always Right Radio on AM 1420. The answer is your host, Bob France. All right, good morning once again. Hour number two is underway at eight minutes past 10 o'clock. It's the third morning of the 11th month year of our Lord 2023. It's a Friday. It's a free-for-all Friday, although we do have some special guests on the program today. Thank you again to Rabbi Barclay for the uh, tremendous history lesson and analysis and uh, uh, lesson literally on uh, the history of the Middle East and on what's going on presently. Um, You need to know the reality of it. Um, Coming up in about a half an hour, we're going to have Senator J.D. Vance in our studios with us. And uh, I want to wish you a happy Fist Bump Friday. Uh, we just invented that this morning. It's called Fist Bump Friday. If you're in a good mood because the weekend is here, fist bump the guy next to you. I don't care where you are, what you do, if you work for a living or if you're in line right now listening through through headphones, if you're in line at a, at a grocery store checkout, turn around and fist bump the guy behind you. Let's make it a thing. It's a good, positive way, I think, to start our Friday and to start our weekend. And like I said, if somebody can invent Taco Tuesday, then doggone it, I can invent Fist Bump Friday. If he was here in my studio right now, I would fist bump Congressman, former Congressman Jim Renacy. But since he is on the phone lines, we'll give him a, a virtual fist bump right now. Uh, Jim Renacy, good to have you back on the program here in Cleveland. How are you? Good, sir. Good morning, Bob, and it's great to be back with you. Are you fist bumping anybody in Medina? Well, I'm not standing around anybody, but I'll definitely fist bump a few people uh, to, as the day passes. All right, that's that's good enough for me. Uh, so, Congressman, uh, the Institute for Legislative Analysis, most people probably have never heard of it. I had never heard of it until I spoke to you yesterday about it, and it looks like they're doing exactly what their name says. They're analyzing our legislature, and uh, they've done the state of Ohio now at your request. Tell us more about that. Well, thanks, Bob, for having me again. And and the Institute for um, uh, Legislative Analysis, it's an interesting group. About a year and a half ago, I finally decided that the only way people will determine how their members of the state legislature, not the federal state legislature, is doing is is having a scorecard. And um, quite frankly, I was even going to try and put a scorecard together. I realized that this is a Big, big uh, thing to do. A lot of money needed. Uh, you need operational people. You need research people. And I was working with Katrina Pearson, who uh, you may remember, she was part of the Trump campaign back I in do. 2016. Yeah, she told me, look, there's already an organization doing this. They're doing it, uh, and they want to grow state by state. So I flew down to Washington, D.C. about a year ago, met with them. And uh, and they were laying out their plan to do these in all 50 states. And I said, well, look, I'd love for you to do one in Ohio. And they did. And they uh, actually uh, presented it uh, yesterday uh, to the nation, Ohio scorecard. So um, this group is uh, a, a group of analysts, uh, conservative analysts. They used to be under the American Conservative Union. CPAC, they separated because what they want to do is they want to be an independent analysis of all state legislatures across our country. Because we know that in many cases, and I know you're going to have J.D. Vance on next, uh, as far as I'm concerned, the federal government is so broken. The only place to fix things is at the state, something I've been saying for years now. You have. And the only way to, the only way to really fix it, Bob, at the state is to really know how your members of the legislature are voting. And now 
uh, in Ohio will have that opportunity. That's very important. You're right. You have been saying that for years. When you were on my uh, show weekly, uh, when you were in Congress, uh, we talked about this at length, about how broken Washington was. It's one of the reasons why you got out of it and wanted to come back to Ohio and make a difference in whatever way you can here. Uh, so, so you got them to go ahead and analyze Ohio's legislature. What jumps? I'm looking at the rankings right now of all of the uh, uh, members of the General Assembly, uh, and you can break this down. What's interesting for those who haven't seen it yet, um, I want you to go to scorecard.limitedgov.org, scorecard.limitedgov.org, uh, and I'm looking at the Ohio um, uh, page. And um, you can do this a number of ways. You can do it by the House, you can do it by the Senate, or you can do it by all chambers at one time. You can do it by Republican, you can do it by Democrat, you can do it by all parties. I'm looking at it right now that way, which I think is the default, uh, Jim, and that is um, uh, all parties and all chambers. And um, what jumps out at you from some of the names that you see with the very high ratings and some of the low? Well, here's what's interesting. And one of the things I want to tell you is, you know, when I was in Congress, I was always mad when Heritage would say, hey, they would announce today the Congress is going to vote on ABC bill and we're going to scorecard it. And I thought this is ridiculous because um, most of the time Heritage was using that as a fundraising mechanism. Here's what's great about this organization. They don't tell you which ones they're scoring. They go back and look at all the bills that you voted on in the previous year and they score it that way. So. What's interesting is when you look at the people and how they were scored, many of the names you would expect to be at the top um, are at the top. Registolfus here in uh, actually in the Canton area, Jenna Powell, uh, they're in the, in the top rankings. But, Bob, I want your listeners to know I went one step further because I'm a, a, a big fan of Jennifer Gross, and she used to rank. They did this once before a few years back, and Jennifer was in was like one or two. And if you look at the scorecard today, she's 12th. So I actually went to her without her knowing, and I went through all the bills they actually scored in 2022 and enlisted them. Now, she did not know why I was doing this. And I asked her, why did she vote for this? Why didn't she vote for this? So forth and so on. And in the end, it was a very interesting analysis because I think she even admitted she made some mistakes. She's really? still very conservative. Yeah, she admitted that she did not understand the bill fully um you know she does not have a staff that researches these thousand page bills and she did miss a few things um but uh it was surprising because she admitted that yes uh she still believes she's one of the most conservative members of our state legislature and i would agree with that too but she does rank 12th yeah and what's really interesting about this I'm 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 on her page or her uh, her her ranking page uh on the Le- Institute for Legislative Analysis here as well. She has an 83.75 and we'll just use her as, as an example since you brought her up. She has an 83.75% rating and when you click on her name you can see literally every bill and every vote that she took and, or that she participated participated in and you can see it's ranked as either voted for limited government or voted against lever- uh, uh limited government. And at the top, you'll see rankings by category. So she has 100% uh, on regulations. She has 100% on free speech and elections. She has 100% on education and on local and national security and on energy and environment. Oh, and also on uh, law and scope of government. Some of her lower marks, though, 61% on tax and fiscal and 33% on health care. What do you read into that? 
Well, I actually looked at those bills. And let's face it, uh, the, the state government has lost their way. They just passed a 90-plus billion-dollar um, budget. And let's face it, when Mike DeWine first got into office in 2018, the budget was 62 or $63 billion. Now it's $98 billion. Anybody who voted for that is not for a limited government. And I think that's one of the votes she made. She voted for um, the budget which really knocked her score down. But if you look at it from that standpoint, that makes a lot of sense. How can anybody in this state legislature vote for a, a state budget that's almost double what it was in 2018? Uh, but these are the, the type of things uh, that uh, the, the bills that she did vote for. And, uh, you know, looking back, she, she would admit that, you know, she probably should have taken a better look at that. But there were things in it. That she supported. And that's part of the problem with these bills. They're so full of garbage half the time yeah. that uh, and some things in there that you really want that you vote for them, even though they're bad for a limited government score. There's three other names. We're talking with former Congressman Jim Renacy, and we're talking about the ranking of Ohio legislators uh, done by the Institute for Legislative Analysis. This was just released yesterday. They've only done state rankings for five states so far, and Ohio has been completed thanks to Jim Renacy's urging of this uh, from this organization, which is completely independent. There's three other names I want to ask you about. The first two... Um, should be well known to everybody because of the massive fight we had with the trans Dems, the 22 Republicans who are transitioning into Democrats by siding with them and voting against Derek Maron, who uh, was given the uh, speaker's gavel out of the caucus. But then when it came to the actual vote, they turned and backed Jason Stevens. Maron is tied for 17th with an 81.25% rating. And uh, Jason Stevens, the current speaker, again, who was the preference of some of those trans Dems and the actual Dems, uh, he is down at 53rd, tied for 53rd, is uh, Jason Stevens with uh, 77.50%. Thoughts on that? Well, here's what's interesting. All the, these guys are independent, so they don't know these people. They don't know the names. They don't, uh, they don't know the individuals. So it is amazing how these individuals score. You'll also see another notable name there matt dolan that was the I mean, third one matt, i was going to go to but i wanted to get the i wanted to get the mayor and stevens thing out there first but good yeah, but, uh, it, go ahead. it it does show you uh the comparison of Marin and stevens it also shows you that Marin isn't 100 percent. which look i don't think anybody can be 100 percent. but it's just you know a lot of people think people are so conservative it's like jennifer gross i thought she would have been in the top two or three well Marin is 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 not either but he's still in the in in the top ranking, yeah, only four uh, only they, four people got over ninety percent. Stolfitz at ninety two, Jenna Powell ninety one, Repron Ferguson at ninety one, and Daryl Kick at ninety one. Everybody else, uh, you know, well, not everybody else, but obviously, then the in the eighties tier is where you will find um, uh, Representative Derek Maron, who should have been the House Speaker. Right, and and what I've always said, and and they used to say this even in Washington, if if you ranked eighty or above with CPAC, which by the way CPAC used to use the Institute for Legislative Analysis um, to do their analysis uh, back in the day when I was in Washington, if you ra- ranked eighty or above, you were considered conservative, and I was always uh, in the in the mid eighties, so I wasn't a hundred percent either back then. But mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it does show you that. You know, uh, um, the, the names we were just talking about, Derek Marin is in the 80s, which means 
he is in the conservative um, areas. Uh, you're never going to be 100 percent, but he's there. Right. But, of course, uh, you, you can see that, uh, you know, our current speaker, Jason Stevens, is definitely 53rd uh, and, and not very conservative when it comes to these rankings. So let's move to Matt Dolan. You brought him up. I was going to bring him up next, too. He's all the way down at 75, uh, number 75, no tie there, 75 percent rating. Uh, he, of course, is one of three candidates, along with Bernie Marino and Frank LaRose, for the Senate spot. What's your uh, What's your take on Dolan? Well, it's interesting. If you look at Matt Dolan and you just look at the Senate categories, he's right next to the Democrats. So they rank Republicans and Democrats. And I think Matt Dolan is the last Republican before you go into the Democrat categories. Now, uh, that's interesting. And, and I know he he tells people he's conservative. He tries to defend a conservative record. But what's really interesting is if you look at those categories that you talked about for Matt Dolan, mm-hmm. there are some things he's 100 percent. But there are some many more that he's not a hundred percent, and forty one percent, yeah, forty one percent on tax and fiscal, fifty seven percent only on local and national security, fifty percent on energy environment, and a dead zero on health care. Yeah, and I can tell you, it's interesting because what's great about this analysis, and, and you and you've just been able to do that. If you go into it, it's all transparent. They, they explain the bills. They explain what's in the bills. They explain what p- position they took, whether you're for or against. And then they show how these representatives voted, whether it was for or against it. And uh, it's an interesting analysis. And then they group it, as you say, by national security tax. Let's face it, our state, when it, when it comes to fiscal responsibility, our state is not fiscally responsible when you see our, our budget and our spending just going up year after year after year. It's horrible. I don't know. It's unsustainable. And many of these legislators voted for these things. Yeah, you're exactly right. We're talking with former Congressman Jim Renacci. So they do congressional rankings as well on the national scale and uh, the federal scale, I guess we should call it. Uh, There are several 100 percenters, none of them from the state of Ohio, Scott Perry, Ralph Norman, Chip Roy, uh, Robert Good, Rand Paul, this is from House and Senate side, and Mike Lee, all 100 percenters. And uh, I think the top Ohio representative when scored by this uh, organization is Jim Jordan at 97.44%. He's, uh, he's in 13th place there. Uh, any analysis on that? Well, I will tell you that if you look at, you're exactly right, if you look at Ohio, uh, you've got uh, Jim Jordan and Warren Davidson, the only individuals in the 90s. And then everybody else falls. Uh, now, remember, this is 2022. Right. They'll do 2023 after the year's up, and they'll pick the bills that they believe really represent uh, conservative small government principles. So, uh, you know, some some may not have been in the legislature in 92, but it does show you that Ohio overall has two members in the 90s, and everybody else pretty much is below the 90s. And I have not looked to see where some of the others are, but... You can you would guess that Jim Jordan and Warren Davidson would be in the 90s when it comes to their voting record. And Bob Latta is the next one. Yeah, Bob Latta and Bob Gibbs actually 120 and 123 in terms of the rankings. Latta has a 78.48%, Gibbs 78.38. Though they are the only two from 2022 uh in the No, I take that back. Brad Wenstrup is also in the 70s at 77.22%. His overall ranking is number 1 
28. I'm trying to find Dave Joyce. I don't expect him to be very high. Probably should go to the bottom and start Dave, scrolling Dave up. Dave Joyce is, is 249. Oh, there you, size is you go. Thank you. I was going to say I should scroll up instead of from the top down uh, to get to him. So, yeah, there's not a lot of uh, high scorers in the state of Ohio, only two, as you say, in the 90s. Yeah, and again, remember, uh, when they were underneath the um, CPAC, uh, con- the American Conservative Union, if you scored 80 or above, you got an award. Um, I got an award almost every year that I was in Congress. Um, but, uh, again, um, I probably only scored <laughs> 81, 82, 84, 85 those years. Uh, I was not in the 90s, but I al- always voted conservatively. The other thing people have to remember, though, uh, to kind of defend uh, some of these individuals, not all of them you can't defend, because right. you really have to represent your district as well. And um, a lot of people used to get mad at me even when I was in Congress, but my, my district was only an R plus one or an R plus two, where you take Jim Jordans and Warren Davidson's, and they're like R34s, which means they're extremely Republican, and they should be voting extreme um, is as much Republican as possible. I do believe if you can keep yourself in the 80s, you're you're like Ronald Reagan. 80-plus uh, 80, 80 percent of the time, you're doing uh, what you should do to try and keep uh, things uh, limited as, as we should have, limited government. Right. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So it's a fascinating look. It's the Institute for Legislative Analysis, Ohio ranking for 2022, and uh, you were instrumental in getting them to do this. By the way, um, some people are going to question your motive for doing this, and they're going to say this is a Jim Renacci presentation. W- 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 why did you want to do this, and what, what, is, uh, what is your response to them? Well, you know, it's funny. Um, that was the first thing I got. When I, when people saw that Jim Renacci was trying to do this, I had legislators calling me saying, oh, you're just going to make this a Jim Renacci presentation. And I realized right away that I had to really find an independent organization because I did not want my hands on it. And uh, clearly or not, these individuals are um, independent. Uh, they ha- they don't even know the legislators in, o- in Ohio. They don't know the governor. By the way, we didn't talk. The governor's ranking is not very conservative either. I was going to ask 16. you about that. Yeah they, yeah, they did a governor's ranking as well, and Mike DeWine didn't come in there very high, did he? No, Mike DeWine comes in in the 60 percentile, and uh, which shows that, look, this is what I love about this. These guys have no idea what's going on in Ohio, but when they do the rankings, they show pretty much what is going on in Ohio, and that is that we don't have a legislature that is fiscally responsible for sure. We don't have a governor who is very conservative at all. Yeah. But again, that's we know that already. We knew that, yeah, before um, these rankings. But it is interesting to see an independent body do the work and literally rank every single uh, piece of legislation, everything that a governor has uh, has spearheaded, anything that a governor has signed or vetoed and so forth. So it is a, a really interesting look. Thank you for doing the work. Thank you for helping us uh, try to hold people accountable and, moreover, give people an idea what they want to do when primaries come up for some of these individuals. Jim Renacci, former congressman, we appreciate it. Well, thank you, Bob. And again, I'm going to keep fighting for Ohio. I said whether I win, lose in any election, my goal is to make Ohio a better place. And we're going to continue to do that. Thank you very much for doing it. All right. It is, it is 1027. I can see through the glass. Waking up America from its woke slumber. Always right radio with Bob France on The Answer. 
Okay, 1035. Appreciate you being with us this morning. Appreciate Jim Renacy be, being with us a little bit earlier on. Appreciate Rabbi uh, Michael Barclay, who joined us in hour number one. And I have a special appreciation for our next guest because he came down to the studio to sit with us. Uh, it's an honor to have a United States senator, a sitting United States senator in our studio, Senator J.D. Vance. It is so good to see you. By the way, first of all, welcome. Thank, Thank you for you. coming. You made a huge fan. You got a, you, I mean, she already supported you, but she's an even bigger fan now uh, in uh, Mrs. France. Okay. When we, were, when we were at the Tucker Carlson event a few weeks back in which he was in town uh, helping to support uh, the No One Issue One campaign to try to stop the radical abortion legislation or amendment, constitutional amendment from going through. As we were leaving the event, you were just getting your car brought around, uh, and uh, and you got out of your car to come over and greet her and shake her hand. She thought that was so very kind and genuine and sincere, and I did too. Uh, I was, you know, because you and I had spoken already. You saw I was standing there with my wife waiting for our car, and you came out and said hi to her, and that meant the world to her. And I and I could tell it wasn't shaking hands and kissing babies type stuff for votes. You know who she is. You know sure. you know what we are. But that was very very. Um, very, very impressive, and I and I think your personal appeal to people is really coming out. So I want to thank you on her behalf. Well, I appreciate that, Bob. I mean, I think a lot of uh, mm-hmm. a lot of this is just being a normal person, and you know, I've talked to you a lot. I like you, um, and when you know somebody and like somebody, you want to meet their family. And I had yeah. never met your wife, so I just want to go shake her hand, say hello. So I'm glad she appreciated the gesture, but uh, nothing, nothing, thought nothing of it. Well, what I did think a lot of is the fact that you were there and you presented and you spoke at that same event in which Tucker, of course, keynoted uh, with a phenomenal address uh, there on behalf of, uh, of, you know, Protect Women Ohio and, and Ohio Right to Life and so on and so forth. We're four days away now yep. from November 7th. Issue one is, according to polling, going to win. It is going to pass. Um, I don't think it's carved in stone yet. I'm seeing some signs of momentum on the no one issue on issue one sign, but, but yeah. where are you, or side, I should say, where are you on this four days out, and what last-minute appeal can you give to those who are maybe undecided? Yeah, so look, I don't think it's carved in stone at all. We've always gonna, we've, we're always going to have an uphill climb, and I think we have a real shot here. I think there are signs of momentum. I've seen some polling that suggests that things are closing pretty tightly, and importantly, that issue one, yes, has not hit that 50% threshold, which means there's a lot of undecided voters out there, so I do think that we have a chance. Get out there and vote. Uh, this is not a foregone conclusion. If you believe that it is, that's how we ultimately lose. Here, here's my basic pitch. Look, first of all, if you're pro-life like I am, you want to save as many babies as possible, clearly you should vote no on issue one. That's easy. But I think even if you're pro-choice, even if you think that there should be some ability to have an abortion in the state of Ohio, I think there are a few different reasons why issue one is a huge, huge mistake. Number one, let's say, God forbid, a 15-year-old girl who has an unplanned pregnancy we want the, their mom to be in the room with them when they have to make this decision. We want parents to have the ability to be notified, to have some role in the health care decisions of their kid. Issue one takes that away from people. That's why you should be vote on. You should be a no on issue one. Number two, let's say you're pro-choice, but you think there should be some limits. You shouldn't be able to abort a baby at 30 weeks. You shouldn't be able to abort a baby after the baby can feel pain. Maybe you think there should be some exceptions in cases of life at the mother or rape, but you don't want taxpayer-funded abortion up to the moment of birth. Issue one takes that away from people. It enshrines taxpayer-funded abortion really up to the moment of birth into the United, or into the Ohio Constitution. So I really think even if you are pro-choice, most people I know who are pro-choice, they want some limits on abortion. They want some ability for the legislature to be able to, to make it a requirement that parents are involved in the health care decisions of their kids. Issue one takes all of that away, which is why I encourage even people who don't see eye to eye with me on the abortion issue. 
I think you should still be known as you won. You know, the the world isn't actually lived on Twitter. Many people think it is or X. I, uh, and and I go by that for just to kind of get a pulse of, of of Ohioans right now. And the the yes on issue one side just continues to call people like you, people like me, liars. Yeah. They're saying that um, there's nothing in that bill, there in that uh, in that constitutional amendment, in that language that says you can abort up to the moment of birth. Part- partial birth abortions are illegal anyway. A federal ban on those things. And there's nothing that says parents don't have a say. And if you look at just the lines of the legislation or the amendment, they're right. But what you have to do is read between those lines. It's not what it says, what is not said. When it doesn't say woman, which is defined as an adult female, and it says individual, that means it can be applied to minors. When it, you know, same thing with the parental rights, same thing with the the transing situation. If you read reproductive rights as being every step of the reproductive rights thing. When you transition and take puberty blockers, you are essentially making yourself sterilized. You're going to be infertile. That's a reproductive decision, and individuals can make that decision. So how do you respond to those who are saying you're lying because it doesn't say specifically in the amendment language that parents can't have a say and that this applies to gender transitioning and so on and so forth? Well, let me say a few things. First of all, uh, the amendment talks about viability as being the threshold. Nobody really knows what viability means. That is not an easily defined term. You could easily have a court define that up to the moment of birth, which is why I say that I think issue one will enshrine abortion up to the moment of birth. There's well, another. But, but just, just quickly on Please. that, they, it goes past that, though, because it says even after the point of viability, an abortion may be granted if in the opinion of the provider, exactly. which is the abortionist, that the mother needs it for her health. And that can mean emotional health, health, psychological health, financial health, et cetera. No, so that, that's exactly right, Bob. So this gets into another issue. When people talk about the health of the mother, I think what most normal people think, understandably so, is you have a situation where, God forbid, the baby is just not viable, and we don't want to force a woman to carry a baby to term that's, that's already, you know, again, God forbid, already not living inside of her. That's what most people think, and absolutely that is a reasonable position to have. What this amendment will do in practice, when it's interpreted especially by, you know, very, very uh, liberal courts, in practice it will say that if you would face emotional distress by delivering a 36-week-old baby, then you can have an abortion. Well, look. Emotional distress is in the eye of the beholder. And when the eye of the beholder is the abortionist's eye, then you are effectively throwing open the gates to no limits on abortion under any circumstance. Now, here's the final point I make about this. This, this abortion amendment is framed by its advocates. Again, we want to be no on issue one, but it's framed by the yes campaign as giving people the right to make decisions about abortion. But in reality, what it will do is it will enshrine an incredibly broad and incredibly poorly defined amendment into the Ohio Constitution. Then the courts get to make these decisions about what issue one really means. We know in the past they interpret this stuff broadly, but that's not giving people the power. That's giving judges the power to decree radical abortion policies for the entire state of Ohio. It's a bad deal for the state, and if you don't like what Ohio is doing on abortion, we sh- you know, elect new legislatures, write to your state senator, to your state representative and say, we would like a change. I think putting this in the Ohio Constitution, taking it out of the hands of the state legislature, really putting it into the hands of some radical judges, it's a bad deal for the state of Ohio and goes way, way too far. The, the, the other thing I'll ask you about this is the uh, yes on issue one ads that continue to run. They continue to be completely dishonest, not even deceptive, just straight up lying, yeah. saying that 
this the you have to vote yes on issue one to stop Ohio's extremely restrictive abortion ban. That if you get pregnant and you need you know care for a miscarriage or ectopic or anything else, you can't get it. You have to have the baby. If you get pregnant uh, uh, the, uh, in your rape, if you're a rape victim, you can't get rid of the baby. You have to carry your baby to term because of Ohio's restrictive abortion ban. There is no abortion ban in place right now. The one that was passed and signed into law, you know, which is the heartbeat law, is is currently in court. We have no idea whether it's going to be allowed to be in or not. Um, and yet they're telling us that it exists. Um, and they're also suggesting that if you're raped, you, you can't have an abortion under any circumstances. Even if the heartbeat law does exist, if the court says it can exist, you have six weeks. And I would imagine that anybody, minor or otherwise, who suffers a rape, that at some point in six weeks would, would, would take a pregnancy test and find out if they were indeed impregnated by the act and therefore still be able to act accordingly under that law. So the ban is not what they say it is. No, that's exactly right, Bob. There's a ton of dishonesty here, mm-hmm. and they're trying to sell this thing as, as effectively what you said. Their argument is if you're an 11-year-old girl and, God forbid, you're raped, you have to carry the baby to term under Ohio's law. That is not Ohio's law, even if the courts uphold the current statutory provisions in Ohio, that is not the law in the state of Ohio. The case that everybody talks about, and this came up during our Senate campaign, of this terrible situation of a 10-year-old girl who was raped and became pregnant, what nobody mentions, who's sort of using this as the, as the perfect test case for the pro-choice side, what nobody mentions is that, number one, she was raped by an illegal alien, a person who never should have been in this, in this country in the first place. That's huge. Number two, they were trying to procure an abortion arguably to cover up the crime. You had a little girl who was being preyed on by an illegal alien. They were procuring an abortion in another state. The problem here is that you have an illegal alien raping a 10-year-old girl and trying to procure an abortion. Why weren't, we, why weren't law enforcement officials notified the day after this happened? That, that is the problem here is a little girl who was preyed upon the fact that they're using her case mm-hmm. to try to advance abortion up to the moment of birth is really sick stuff. It really is. And uh, we didn't even address the issue of pain capability at 15 weeks, weeks which, I, I, again, I cannot imagine the giddiness and the excitement of people to say, yes, we made it legal to kill babies after they can feel themselves being dismembered and the things that go on. And I'm sorry for being graphic, but no, we, no, have to Bob, face, this, we have to face what it is. But this is a really important point here. If you take take the, the Ohioans, the Americans who describe themselves as pro-choice, they believe in a right to an abortion. I'm pro-life. We can have that moral disagreement. Right. Even the people who describe themselves as pro-choice, they don't want to have abortions after the baby can feel pain. They don't want partial birth abortion. They don't think that you should be able to walk into a doctor's office 35 weeks pregnant and claim emotional distress and then abort your baby. Now, the other argument these guys make is this never happens, right? Nobody ever walks into a doctor's office 35 weeks pregnant and wants to abort a healthy baby. And God, I, I wish that was true, but it's not, Bob. We, we know there's data out there from the Guttmacher Institute, which, by the way, is a pro-abortion organization. There are 8,000 purely elective abortions, late-term abortions that happen in this country every single year. That is post-viability. That is no reason to abort the baby other than the mom or the, the dad want to, that is not humane health care. That is not pro-choice. That's not even, remember, Bill Clinton used to say safe, legal, and rare. That is radical pro-abortion policy, and these guys are trying to write it into the Ohio Constitution. Vote no one issue one to prevent them from doing so. Perfectly well stated. Senator um, uh, J.D. Vance is our guest in our studios here. I was prepping for the conversation today, and last night I was looking up an issue on Article 2, or excuse me, an article in Issue 2, beg your pardon, 
Headline, Brown supports issue two while Vance remains silent. <laughs> and I have I, I, I didn't find anything to disprove that. Have you spoken out about issue two and where you sit on that? So I have. I'm, I'm a no on issue two, just to be clear. Good. Um, and I, I, I mean, what's weird about that article is I've given a few interviews where they ask me about issue two, and I always say I'm no on issue two, and maybe they just haven't published the interviews. You know, you never know. Maybe you so. give an interview, and you never know what actually uh, goes goes to press. Here's my argument against issue two. Look, I, I'm sort of one of these guys. I'm 39 years old. If you're caught with a joint, I don't think you should be thrown in prison for it, even though I think, you know, I, I, I strongly discourage my friends and, and family to smoke marijuana, Okay. I think that its side effects are much more significant than people let on. But, like, whatever. If you're caught with a joint, you should not get thrown in prison. Of course. Here's what I also think. I'd like to be able to take my kid out to dinner in Cleveland or Cincinnati or Columbus and not just be overwhelmed with the smell of weed when you walk down the street. Okay? You go to the places that have recreational marijuana, Denver, Colorado, San Francisco, California, and it becomes like an open-air drug market. There are no limits. There are no exceptions. It's not... Do whatever you want to do in the safety of your home. It's in your face everywhere. That's why I'm a no on issue two. I want people to not bring this everywhere that kids walk around, play. I want to be able to go to my job. I want to be able to do normal things without being slammed in the face with the smell of weed. I'm glad you brought up the kid aspect of that, too, because every single pediatric hospital and doctor that talks about this, that knows about this, will tell you about the effect of marijuana on, on kids yes. and, and because of their preformative brains. They're literally losing brain function. You know, m- brains don't, don't fully form until mid-20s for, for females, late-20s for males. Or even later. <laughs> In many cases, yeah. And and they're talking about this. And this is going to tell kids that, you know what, drugs are okay. Yes. If one drug is okay, you think they're going to stop and say just that one? Of course not. Yep. They're going to be they're going to get into many other things. And the availability of it is going to be more than ever before. Because at least now there's a there's a there's a chance that if I buy drugs, I'm going to get caught and I'm going to be in trouble. You legalize it, they're going to get it not from the dispensaries and pay the uh, the the, the, ta- the you know the hiked uh, tax uh, tax price. They're going to get it from the dealers, and there's going to be even more of those undercutting the cost of the dispensaries. So it's just going to put more weed in more hands and make it more e- you know easier for for people to access, including kids. I would hope that people would be concerned about that. I would hope so, too, Bob. I mean, we've run this experiment a number of times. We have recreational marijuana in a number of states. What do you see? see traffic incidents go up, traffic fatalities go up, increased usage, especially among young kids. That's not a good thing for the state of Ohio. Look, we we just went through two years where a lot of kids were denied a good education. Are we going to further make it hard for kids to get ahead, to learn, to focus, to do well at school? That's what this is going to do. I know a lot of people just say, look, live and let live. You do it in your house. I do what I want to do in my house. In reality, this will throw it out into the community. It will make it very hard to control. That will be very hard for our kids. Glad to hear that you're a no on two, like I said, because not enough people are getting that message. So no on issue one, no on issue two. Let's talk about Senate business now. You are also no on economic aid to Gaza. Yeah. Uh, you had a you had a pretty good showdown there with uh, it was Margaret Brennan I think on That's CBS right. and she was telling you but what about all of the Palestinian children? Uh, tell us why you don't want aid to go to to, uh, to the Gaza Strip. Well, I'll tell you what I, I told her, Bob. If I could wave a magic wand and give food medicine to Palestinian children, I would. Of course, there are a lot of innocent Palestinian kids who are getting caught up in this, but we know on the ground that when we deliver aid to Gaza, Hamas ends up taking it. They are the governing force in the Gaza territory. They control everything. They control the logistics. They control the military, the way that equipment moves. I don't want to send food and medicine to Palestinian children that ends up just further fueling the war effort against Israel, right? 
Are we going to fund both sides of this conflict? We're going to support the Hamas fighters and we're going to support the Israelis? That seems like a very, very stupid idea for the American taxpayer. And by the way, as a pro-Israel guy, a very, very bad deal for the the Israeli allies. So uh, this is a really terrible idea. I think that we need to be careful about how we support um, our, our friends in Israel, of course. But we need to do it, in my view. We need to make sure it actually happens. And we need to not support this war in a way that just sends resources to Hamas. Yeah, and Hamas, um, you know, it's been reported even by the New York Times that Hamas has stockpiled food and water and all kinds of, of, of necessities that the Palestinian people or the Gazan people could use, and they stored in underground tunnels for their own use, and they starve out their own people. Absolutely. And that's because they have literally said, uh, the, you know, the leader of Hamas has said, we need the blood of men, women, and children uh, in Gaza to, to be spilled so that we can, what was it, advance and revive our revolutionary spirit against Israel. Yeah. This so. is the explicit strategy. It is to put <clears throat> men, women, and children, innocents, in the face of the war effort, and when they inevitably get killed and injured, to use them as propaganda, propaganda. both for their own war and their own population, but also for European allies of Israel, for American allies of Israel. They're trying to break the resolve here. And look, I, I think we have got to give some flexibility to our Israeli friends here. They've been dealing with this problem much longer than we have. The war is not even two weeks old. They've already made significant progress, actually. They've, they've cut North Gaza and South Gaza in half. And North Gaza, of course, is sort of the basis of Hamas. So we ought to let them try to root out this terrorist organization, support them as they do it, obviously offer intelligence support and 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 counsel when we think that they're doing the right thing or the wrong thing. But we've got to give these guys some flexibility to accomplish their effort here. So no Gazan aid because Hamas is going to take it. I am right. with you. $14.3 billion in Israeli aid. At least that's what was passed by the House yesterday. Um, will it get through the Senate? And and I want you to answer this, too, because you, like many others, including myself, are done sending money to Ukraine. Yep. They're going to say, why Israel, not Ukraine? Where do you come down? Well, first of all, I've made this point before. Israel is a totally separate country from Ukraine. It has an achievable objective. It's one of our most important allies, and it's asking for much, much less money than Ukraine, which has already received $120 billion and is yeah. now asking for $60 billion on top of it. So these are fundamentally different issues, and I think at the very least we should be debating them separately. Now, I would support and I, will, I plan to vote for the $14 billion aid package to Israel. We have to remember here that what Speaker Johnson did was actually very smart. He actually paid the bills for once, right? He passed $14 billion of aid to Israel, but he paid for it by cutting $14 billion out of the IRS budget. I think that's a good deal for America and, of course, a good deal for allies. You asked the question, will it pass in the Senate? It's a very tough question to answer, Bob, because unfortunately we have way too many establishment Republicans who would like to tie Israel to Ukraine because they realize that it gives political cover for a very unpopular Ukraine policy. And I don't get it, man, but a lot of these guys are obsessed with sending $60 billion to Ukraine, and I think they're willing to hold up $14 billion of aid to Israel as hostage. They're literally willing to take the Israeli support hostage for $60 billion in Ukraine. I think we have to push back against it. I think this is going to be the fight in Washington over the next two weeks. We should not be holding Ukraine, or excuse me, we should not be holding Israel, Israel hostage to $60 billion for Ukraine. Whatever you believe on the on the Israel question, they're separate issues, and we should not be combining them into this massive spinning package. Sad to say, Republican leadership, including Leader McConnell, are on that side of things, and I wonder whether or not he's going to whip up votes against the 14.3 unless it is added to uh, a Ukrainian package. Um, speaking of the Senate, the first senator, to my understanding, has indeed now called for a ceasefire. Senator Dick Durbin 
uh, said we need to have a ceasefire. And Joe Biden, as of yesterday, has warned that Israel's support might be eroding. Hurry up and get on with it and get it done because support is eroding uh, in the rest of the world for them. So he tries to say, does Joe Biden, that our support for Israel is unequivocal, and then he equivocates like you couldn't even believe. Your thoughts on both the ceasefire call from Durban and whether that will add names to it? Uh, yeah, and I've already seen some Democratic senators uh, join in with Senator Durbin. Look, this is a very dangerous time for the people of Israel, and we have to be honest about this. And I guess my pitch is, number one, on the actual substance of the policy, it is ridiculous to expect people who lost 1,400 of their own citizens just two weeks ago who are a week and a half into a ground incursion to Gaza to already be calling for a ceasefire. They have an objective When you have friends, you trust your friends, we should let them accomplish that objective. That's on the policy. But look, we we have to be very careful here, Bob, because we're seeing one of the oldest bipartisan issues in the country was support for the state of Israel. The recognition that we got a lot out of our support for Israel. They provided intelligence. They provided technology, things that we benefited from in this country. You're already seeing evidence that the Democratic Party is no longer unified in its support of one of America's most important allies and I guess my, my pitch to my friends who are pro-Israel, whether they're, they're Jewish or not, whether they're in this country or not, my pitch would be we're seeing evidence that the Democrats are abandoning the state of Israel. We need to be really careful here, hold their feet to the fire, but not pretend that Joe Biden and Dick Durbin are friends to Israel when they're calling for a ceasefire a week and a half into this operation. We are 10 days into it, Bob. It's crazy to me that these people are already waffling. You know, um, Senator Vance... A ceasefire indicates that both sides agree to stop firing. I cannot believe that Senator Durbin made that call and so many others on the House side, what we call the Hamas squad or the Hamas caucus. It's much bigger than the actual quote-unquote squad. They don't seem to understand that Hamas has not agreed to a ceasefire. As a matter of fact, Hamas has said no ceasefire. Quoting Ghazi Hamad, member of the Hamas Politburo, October 24th, so it's a week ago, we must teach Israel a lesson and we will do this again and again. The October 7th operation to slaughter defenseless Israelis is, quote, just the first time. There will be a second, a third, and a fourth. That's what a ceasefire means to Hamas. When Israel lays down their weapons, we plan the next October 7th, and the one after that, and the one after that. How can anybody ignore those those statements from Hamas that, no, we're not going to agree to a ceasefire? And by the way, maybe they're sending people over across the southern border to do the same thing here, right? This is is really a worldwide phenomenon here. We're seeing the rise of Islamic terrorism for the first time in 20 years. Uh, Thank you for calling it that. Most people are are, are taking the Islamic part of this out of the equation. They're seeing it as a territorial dispute, not a religious ideological dispute. It is absolutely not. And and, and look, you, you raised the perfect question. If Israel agrees to a ceasefire tomorrow, what happens? Do we think like peace breaks out, we're singing Kumbaya and throwing out white doves everywhere? No. Hamas is going to attack Israel a week later, two weeks later. You cannot possibly expect the Israelis to lay down their arms 10 days into this process when Hamas is still saying they want to kill their civilians. Here's another thing, Bob. Like I harp on this a lot. Statesmanship. Statesmanship is recognizing where your allies and where your own population actually is. Joe Biden cannot possibly expect the Israeli government to lay down their arms 10 days into this, given what just happened to them. If your advice to your allies is not rooted in political reality, set to the side that it's stupid advice. Why is he even giving the advice when the entire country of Israel is unified behind rooting out Hamas? 
He needs to let our friends actually take care of business. You used the word maybe a few minutes ago, talking about uh, it's going to happen here in the United States as well because of the southern border. I think there's no maybe about it. We got a report from the San Diego Customs and Border Patrol front uh, that that said absolutely Hamas and Hezbollah, specifically, not just saying Arabs who may be, but Hamas and Hezbollah fighters are absolutely coming across that border. We know this for a fact now. The question is, is exactly when are they going to strike, not if. Almost all of the intelligence agencies agree on this, yet... The president and his party continue the open-door asylum catch-and-release policy. Is it going to take an explosion in a Capitol building or something uh, on the scale of or slightly less than 9-11 for them to realize this? Bob, it is the craziest thing. I try to understand. I really try to understand where the other side is coming from. I don't assume that I know everything. The Biden border invasion is the worst set of policies I have ever seen from an administration. He is actively inviting lawlessness, drugs, terrorism, sex trafficking into the country, and they're not doing anything about it. This is not rocket science, okay? Some problems are hard, right? This is not rocket science. You need to put people at the border who tell the guys who are trying to cross illegally, go back and go through the proper channels, and they are not willing to do that. They are inviting people. They're actually fighting. We we, we sent a letter to the uh, CFPB about this yesterday, I believe, Bob. They are fighting banks from who don't want to lend to illegal aliens. They're actually trying to prevent banks from not lending to illegal aliens. This is crazy. It's not even we're facilitating the invasion. We're not going to tell American financial institutions they have to lend money to these guys after they break America's laws. It's insane. And yes, Bob, I fear we're not going to get pushback until either we get a new president, uh, which we get an opportunity to do that in about a year, or until some very significant tragedy happens in our country. God forbid. I hope it doesn't happen. But we are in a very tough spot. Well, Senator Vance, I know you are one of the very few who are speaking out about uh, about that against in the issue of banks lending to illegals. I'm so glad that you are doing that, and I'm glad you're doing so many of the things you are doing. We didn't get a chance to get into the uh, no mask mandates and the transportation bill. That's a great amendment, too. You're doing great work, Senator Vance. I know you got a tight schedule today, so we have to let you loose. Thank you for coming into the studio. Thank you for doing what you're doing. I think Ohio uh, made the right decision when they made you our, our newest senator, and I think you are uh, rewarding them with some terrific work. Thank you so much. Thanks, Bob. No one issue one. And on issue two. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.